Welcome to Learn With Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell, Share Entrepreneur, Sharp Advisor, and your host for the show. Every week we talk and discover experts, scientists, leaders from around the world. Please subscribe. It tells the Google guys this is content worth watching. Today we're joined with Diane Dianopoli, the Penguin Expert, award-winning author of The Penguin Rescue. The Great Penguin Rescue, sorry. And it's also on her back right shoulder If people, for the people watching, you can see it. I recommend this book very highly if anyone wants to read it. She's a TEDx speaker as well, frequent guest expert on radio, podcast, television from around the globe, as well as frequent appearances on the BBC and CNN. Diane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be back again. Yes, this is the second time she's been on here. And for people listening in, if you spot a cat and you tag it in the timestamp, uh, if you tag it below, I will, I will like pin your comment to the top. There's a cat. <laughs> We, we got we got great production value today. All right, so I, I've been wondering this question for some time, and hopefully you can answer it, but it's okay, okay. If, you do, if you cannot, because this is kind of weird. I read a report that every now and again, penguins will just wander off into Antarctica, never be seen again. Like just one will get up and be like, I'm gonna walk into the center. They don't know where they go, but you're the penguin expert. Do you, do you know where they go? Or do you have I theories on where they go? And have you heard of this? Well, I'm assuming you saw the Werner Herzog film, something, something, mm. I'm trying to remember the title, something about the end of the world or, you know, do you know Werner Herzog? He's this very uh, yeah. sort of eccentric filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, and he does have uh, a film that I saw about Antarctica. It's about the scientists at McMurdo Station and how sort of quirky and interesting all these characters are. So it's really a character study. But at the end of the film, he has this clip of this one Adelie penguin doing just that, just sort of mm -hmm. wandering off into the interior of Antarctica, probably never to be seen again. So, you know, I don't know. This is not something I've really really heard about uh, from other scientists that I know, but it probably does happen from time to time. Who knows? You know, uh, I don't know, maybe an old penguin, maybe an ailing penguin, a confused penguin, maybe a young one, you know, that mm. didn't follow the crowd. So who knows? But you have not personally witnessed a penguin just get up and walk into the interior. I have not. No. Okay. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to ask like to, to, to what probability would you guess that there's like Cthulian-esque monster in the middle of the Antarctic that uh, the penguins are the only ones who know exist and they're like sacrificing themselves <laughs> for the benefit of the globe. Because I feel like it's gotta be greater than zero. I, you've been there, but when I when I think of that area, people always describe it as alien. It's the only continent mm. that people weren't there before we started moving around again. So mm -hmm. I feel like it's something to stop humans. There's gotta be something weird there. But you know, so how what would you be your percentage guess i'm like there's something <laughs> they're actually going towards something. i don't you know i don't think there is but you know and, and i know there are sort of these out there theories about all mm -hmm. this stuff that's really happening underground in antarctica which you know uh conspiracy theories there's a lot of interesting mm -hmm. conspiracy theories out there um but when you just said that antarctica is alien i always describe it when it, when people say what is antarctica like because i've been four times now and the first thing I always say, it's the most otherworldly place I've ever been. It feels like mm. you've been dropped onto another planet because it's so unlike any place else that I've, and I've traveled to a lot of places in the world and Antarctica is incredibly unique, incredibly different. And it does feel alien. It's just so vast and, and pristine and silent and it's hard to even describe it in the words that we have. Hmm. From your first visit to your fourth visit, are there things that still strike you throughout when you're visiting there? I mean, every, like some things get some things get old, right? But like, there's some things that nothing gets old. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no. I mean, every 
minute of every day Mm. is different there. Like everything changes Mm. so quickly. The weather changes in a heartbeat, you know, the conditions change in a heartbeat, though there's so much wildlife and there's so many that everybody's doing something different. You know, each animal is doing something different. So there's so many behaviors and every moment is unique. And so And myself and anybody that I know who has been there multiple times, you know, people that work there and have been going for years and years and years, no one ever tires of it. In fact, it really Mm -hmm. gets into your blood and and into your bones and you feel like you can't get enough and you need to go back there. Um, So, no, it never gets tiring. It never gets old. It never gets dull in any way whatsoever. Is there, are there elements of it that you still want to explore or do you primarily go for the penguins or is there like the, the, is there something to the physical location or to the penguins that draw you in? I mean, for me, clearly because I'm a penguin expert and that's what I have been, you know, studying and writing about and teaching about for 25 years, that's my primary interest, but that's not my only interest. There's just something about the place itself. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people are really drawn to the ice and the icebergs, and I find them very beautiful, but it's not what draws me. For me, it's more the, uh, the overall scenery um, the overall place, the overall vastness of it. And, um, just, it's so remote, you know, you are, you really feel, like I said, you feel like you've been dropped on another planet. You just feel so far removed from life Mm. as you know it. And, and coming back, you know, when you're there for a few weeks, uh, when you re-enter, you know, when you kind of sail back to Ushuaia on the ship and all of a sudden you start seeing, colors that you haven't seen, you realize I haven't seen green for three weeks now, or I haven't seen that color for three weeks now. And you don't realize while you're there, all you're really seeing are blues and grays and whites. And that's kind of it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and I forgot the actual question you asked where I started. I went off on a tangent. No, you were going where I wanted, where uh, okay. I wanted to hear about the, the <laughs> idea that you know you're there for the penguins, but what else is there that draws ah. you? The continent itself is very exciting too, as well. The the different I I hear that often that there's different hues of blue. I mean mm-hmm. of of ice and stuff like that, which is kind of mm-hmm. interesting. I'm a I'm a fan of green, so if I were to go there, I'd, I think there'd probably be like someone have to stop me. I'd try to like make a little greenhouse or something, which <laughs> I'm sure there's like some type of treaty that says I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah, um, you're not because I just like. <laughs> I like yeah, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I just uh, I like seeing green where I go, even if it was just like a little plant, it'd make me happy. I mean, but, there are lichens there, but they're they're yeah. a little more brown than green generally. Um, yeah, there's not there's really not green down there. Yeah, yeah. Is Antarctica the one that it go it gets dark for like six months of the year, or is that the the? Well, both poles will do that. Uh, And so in Antarctica, when sort of tourists go there and when I've gone there, because I'm usually going on these ships that are bringing tourists, I'm going as a guest expert, as a lecturer and a guest penguin expert. So I'm going on these ships. So when you're going as a tourist, you're going during the Antarctic summer which is Mm -hmm. our winter here in the Northern hemisphere. And when you're there during the Antarctic summer, it never gets dark. So the sun never sets. So the interesting thing for me about that is that I never get tired. Like you just, your, your circadian rhythms, you know, aren't, Mm. aren't, you're not getting the signal to go to sleep. And so you can be up at one o'clock in the morning taking photos because there's enough sunlight to do that. And so I usually am. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's light six months and then it gets dark for six months. So during the Antarctic winter, it's the sun doesn't come up at all. And that, interestingly, is when the emperor penguin does its breeding, where the yeah. other penguins breed during the Antarctic summer, mostly on the Antarctic Peninsula. And that's, you know, when you're going as a tourist, that's where you're going on these boats is along the Antarctic Peninsula. So you're right there in the midst of these colonies with all these penguins are mating and laying eggs and raising chicks. And, you know, all this life is going on. Um, and during the Antarctic winter, that people, you know, you'd only be going there if you're a researcher. Uh, it was it was on my list to ask you why or you know what would be your guess or hypothesis is right around why the emperor penguin would lay its eggs at like the worst time of the year like if, if i was a, if i was a, a an egg laying laying uh anything i was like and i had my choices during the during where i could see what i'm doing versus like in the dark right. i'd probably not shoot the dark but right because yeah so is there is there any like science behind why they do that I mean, it seems like a Darwin Ward recipient, mm. right? Of in the penguin world, like who? What kind of evolutionary strategy is that to breed in the middle of the Antarctic winter, where the sun never rises, where it's you know it can be a hundred degrees below zero, winds can be blowing a hundred miles an hour, and you're just sitting there on your egg for two months, you know, not eating while the female goes off to feed and you're the male all sitting, you know, huddling together for warmth. I mean, it, it's crazy. I, I, it's a, it's a miracle that these birds have managed to survive and thrive there. I mean, they were actually just declared endangered about um, two, a few months ago. I think it was January that the emperor penguin was declared endangered because they are seeing some colony collapses in some areas. Um, but yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense from an evolutionary standpoint. I think I wonder uh, if it's like they're really self-conscious and they don't want to look at each other, you know, when they're like in the mating dance and uh, like they, you know, they have the, the the term, you know, emperor penguins. And that's just to kind of like make themselves seem big. It's like when you have a, a really big friend and you call them tiny or a really small friend, you call them like, you know, giant or something. I don't know what the the, pot, the alternative equivalent of this is, but maybe like the first explorers of the emperor penguin just realized they were like really shy. They're like, they didn't like seeing see each other when they're mating or something. I don't know. That'd be like the silliest thing, though. Or like predators I, couldn't find them, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the one thing from an evolutionary standpoint that they did do right is that they evolved to be the largest penguin with the largest mm. body mass and the largest amount of fat and the and the most feathers per square inch on their body. So, you know, they had to develop some sort of adaptation, right, to survive in these extreme, extreme conditions. So... Um, yeah, and that's where the, I think they get the the name Emperor Penguin because they are the largest and because of the beautiful markings that they have, these yellow and orange feathers around their chin and on the sides of their faces. You know, they're really beautifully colored where um, only they and the King Penguin have those types of markings. The others are a little more plain looking. Hmm. Of, of the penguins that exist either in, in the Antarctic, in, Ar in Antarctica or throughout the world, is there a species or a type that you're really interested in learning more about or that you want to be researching right now? It's well, people, it's interesting the way you ask that because usually people say, what's your favorite penguin? But nobody mm. has asked me that. Um, I think the, the, and they sort of are the same for me right now. So when I worked at the New England Aquarium, one of the species that we had there were little blue penguins, which are the smallest mm. penguin. They're also called fairy penguins and they're from Australia and New Zealand and they're tiny. They're only like two to three pounds and they're adorable, and they actually have blue feathers on their back, which is why they're called Little Blue. Um, 
Oh, and for, yeah, I actually have. So here's basically, that's basically like a life-size little blue penguin. Oh, it's adorable. Yeah. For people listening in, we're seeing a, a little plushy version of a blue penguin. Right. And it's about eight inches high. You know, they're just a tiny little thing and they're adorable. Hmm. Uh, and so I had worked with them for years and I really, you know, that was a species I was very interested in. And then on my last trip to Antarctica in 2019, on that itinerary, we essentially followed Ernest Shackleton's route, who, mm. and I can talk about Shackleton. He was an explorer, an amazing explorer and leader um, whose ship was trapped in ice and he was down there for two and a half years. Uh, and so we went to South Georgia Island, which is where he eventually found his rescue. And on South Georgia Island, there's a colony of about 400,000 king penguins, which are the smaller cousin of the emperor penguin. and. We went onto the shore at 4.30 in the morning, you know, that we got into our zodiacs before sunrise so that we could be on the beach surrounded by these king penguins as the sun came up. And it was just the most mind-blowing experience. And what I did not know about the king penguin and what I, was a surprise was how bold and curious they were about people. So when you go to Antarctica, you know, you go to see penguins in the wild, and especially there, there are very strict rules. So you can only get within 20 feet or 15 feet of the penguins, and then, you know, you can't approach them any closer. But if you stand or sit in one spot, if they want to approach you, they are free to do so. So I just sat down on the ground as soon as I got there. And the next thing I know, I have king penguins nibbling on my toes, on my fingers, on my camera. And I just was like, this is heaven. So mm. so they became, they sort of, you know, sorry, little blues, but the king penguin now is really the penguin that I'm sort of most fascinated by at this point in time. All right. Well, um, when you're doing research, when you're exploring a penguin, do you have any like Jane Goodall-esque type desire to like try and figure out everything about them, like write books about them, um, understand their social hierarchies. Like I'm, I'm really trying to understand when you go to meet them, when you go to explore and, and understand them, what are you looking for? What do you, what is your ambition when you, when, when you're, when they have, when they have your, your focus? Well, I'm not a field researcher. I think, you know, mm -hmm. I went back to school in my thirties to do the work that I yeah. do now. And I think had I started younger, I would have become a field researcher. Um, because I really, I'm so curious and I want to mm -hmm. know everything and I want to, you know, figure things out. Um, yeah. But for me, what has always been the most interesting with any sort of animal is, is the behavior, you know, why, yeah. and, and the communication too. So all, you know, the nonverbal communication, the verbal communication, um, and, and that's always been sort of the most interesting to me. So I'm always really observing the behavior and and filming it and photographing it and and bringing that back. So when I am teaching people about penguins, you know, whether it's kids or adults, I'm able to really share a lot of these really interesting aspects of their lives uh, that that you know they might not know about or or mm -hmm. be aware of um, because you know they certainly have emotional lives. They have you know their they, their behaviors show us that it's not just all instinct that they're acting on. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what I find the most fascinating. Mm -hmm. 
That makes sense. There's a there's an authenticity when you can really understand them to the point where, you know, if you were in front of people, you might be able to even like walk like them. Like, hey, this is what it's like when you're in a group of them, which is reminding me of in Lord of the Rings. They had like orc training camp where they everyone had to learn how to be like an orc. And uh, it just adds an element when you're learning about something, when you're communicating something where you can actually, you know, when someone knows what they're talking about, when you can replicate many different aspects. I'm not saying you go around and, you know, walk like a penguin, but it, like, it all adds up cumulatively to allow you to speak on something very knowledgeably. Well, it's funny you say that, Lowell, because one of my programs for really little kids is called Penguin for a Day. And that's exactly mm. what we do. I, you know, I kind of compare things that we do how we do things with the way penguins do them, you know, like this is how we walk. This is how they walk and why, you know, they waddle because they have knees and this is how they cool off. And this is how we, so, and then we do a lot of the behaviors like the way the penguin would do it. So they could sort of make that comparison like, Oh, okay. So, you know, we do things that are similar, but we have to do them a little differently. And so it helps them to sort of understand why penguins do what they do and how they do what they do. It sounds like there'd be a really great business opportunity there to get the little blue penguin ones and then just expand it to the size of like a toddler and then say they could get it as a onesie. And then, you know, imagine like have the immersive exploration of it so you can go out there and then, you know, donate the proceeds or whatever. But it sounds like a really great uh, business opportunity to make like uh, even adults, like the people my age. And I'm not going to name anyone, but I have friends who have giant like stitch onesies or my neighbor Totoro where they will. Uh, one friend in particular will say, if I'm wearing this, that means like be nice to me. And I was like, you know what, whatever you whatever helps you communicate that you need extra love. I don't mind. Are, but, are uh, they called furries or something? I'm trying to think of the name. Oh, uh, furries are entirely different things. So, uh, oh, OK, uh, I think furries are like a social plus it could be like a sexual thing as well. Yeah. Uh, but I guess anything can That's be. The internet's a terrible of. place. Okay. <laughs> but the, the, diff the difference, the way I imagine it is like furries take more commitment. So I talked to a furry and I wanted to get them on the show, but unfortunately they were not willing to like come on. And uh, I think YouTube would and the internet would might like destroy what I'm doing. But the, the 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 difference in terms of equipment is that a furry's outfit is like ten grand. Oh my it's god! It's really expensive. Yeah. Holy moly! So that's a commitment. But, yeah, but like the Totoro stitch ones, these are like thirty dollars at Target. So I feel oh, okay. like there's a like that. I feel like that probably is is the difference. Like, you know, it's like how much you're willing to commit right. to to do that. I feel like there's something extra there if you're spending that amount of money. And typically, yeah. the people. It's like they're building it themselves. Like there's something like there's some like like they're building their own plumage. Like if they're penguins, like they're they're trying to like show something off. That's how I see the difference. Any furries out there, you're welcome to message me and, and tell me about it. <laughs> set I, us I will straight. <laughs> yeah, set us straight. You can comment on it, but I think I don't know if I could. You know, I would like to have it so I could just interview anyone. But I think that uh, there was a, like recently there was like some censoring going on from like oh. I've been posting on YouTube uh, new stuff and there's been like censoring of some of my content. So I don't know. Really? Wow. But, yeah. Well, it was, it's all good. I'll get it worked out. Maybe one day they, they okay. pick on the, the, you know, the people growing, but uh, yeah, I don't know where we started with this thing, but not, not <laughs> first. So uh, I'll go to one of my prompts. The, yeah. So I wanted to, yeah. So illegal hunting is the, is the headline in December, oh. 2020, a man was arrested in Argentina, which is for people who are globally, you know, dyslexic is pretty close to Antarctica for smuggling more than 200 penguin eggs, highlighting the ongoing problem of illegal hunting and uh, for penguins and other wildlife, especially if there are emperor penguins that are on the endangered species list. Uh, how and the fact that you have so many protocols to stay away from penguins and not mess with them. But if they come, you know, near you, that's fine. 
what do you think about legal hunting? What what could what could be done to improve upon it? Have you have you seen it? I don't like how are I guess they just take a boat over and grab them when no one's looking. I'm actually shocked that I have not heard this story until mm. this moment. You said this well, was December 2020? Yes. It's from The Guardian. And yeah, 200 eggs. Wow. I can, I can, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you after this. I, what, I fully did it say this. was he um, harvesting them for food or for selling them to, you know, facilities? Uh, or did it say what he was doing with them? No, one second. Wow, uh, I'm really surprised. Well, you know what? That was the uh, month jerk. my book came out. So I was very, very focused on that. So that might be why I missed that story. Because mm. I was having to do all sorts of promotion for the house. Like I was required yeah. to post, I think, every day for a month or something. Um, well, that's wild. So that might be why I missed that story. But now I have to look that up. Yeah. But in terms so, of illegal hunting and harvesting eggs, I guess. Yeah, it's all illegal. I mean, they're all protected. Yeah. Every penguin species is protected, whether they are listed as endangered or not. They're all protected. So any sort of hunting or anything like that of their eggs, of you know the chicks, of the adults is all very, very illegal. Um, but I know in South America and you know more in um, Paraguay, I've heard more of an issue with that uh, than I haven't really heard of that in Argentina. But you know. I'm sure it happens. Um, So, so it probably would be Magellanic penguins and there are large colonies of them, very large colonies of them um, down sort of along the, the Southern coast. Uh, So I'm very curious, like, was he harvesting those eggs for food? Because, you know, they used to do that. That was way back in the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s with some species, especially rock hopper penguins and African penguins, you know, before anybody was really concerned about conservation um, or really sort of understood the impact that, you know, humans could have on species, the, there was a lot of egg harvesting going on and there were total breeding failures for, you know, years and years at some of these colonies. And it actually, that's why some of these species are still to this day, they never recovered from that. Um, and so in South Africa, for example, it was only, I think, 1967 that the egg harvest was made illegal. So it went on for decades. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I'm, I, well, when we are done, I'm going to go look that up because I want to know more about this story mm-hmm. now. Now I'm very curious. So, yeah, I mean, anything we do, it, you know, so many of the things that are happening you know, that sounds like it might have been a small scale operation and it might not have had a huge impact. But I mean, 200 eggs is, you know, when you extrapolate down the generations, that's going to add up, you know, onto how many birds we might have lost from that one collection. And who knows how many times is out there collecting and didn't get caught. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of impacts that humans are having on penguins historically and to this day. So, uh, you know, things that we are doing, we may not even think about are impacting them because there's this ripple effect, you know, and, and Jane Goodall says it a lot, you know, every action, everything we do every day makes a difference. And what sort of difference do you want to make? Um, so the biggest issue for penguins and so many other animals is climate change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the thing we can each do in our own daily life is to reduce our carbon footprint, do what we can to reduce our impact on the, on the planet. You know, there, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot I could say about all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, I, I, I'm familiar with the uh, exotic pets as something, but I think in this case, if I remember correctly, it was just 
he was eating them, which is why not just mm. eat like a chicken egg or something. You know, it's like you don't get you don't get arrested for it, and you know a chicken will just live wherever you want a chicken to live. Or like a penguin, it's only like a certain spots on the planet. Right. So, but I wonder to what extent there are exotic egg hunters that specifically are tailored to like the people who really like penguins in terms of um, getting the eggs, hatching them, and, and sending them off. But I, it sounds like uh, breed, uh, breeding the uh, breeding and rearing the eggs that might be really technically difficult. So that might not be something yeah. that the average Joe could do. I mean, the reason I said that is because you know historically most zoos and aquariums. Um, their colonies were started with a combination of eggs that were brought mm. back and, and adults um, or juveniles. Um, so, so historically, and even probably until recently, some of this egg collection was going to, to um, start zoos and aquarium colonies. So, you know, that it's possible that that mm. might've been what he was up to, but um, and, and their eggs were considered a delicacy in some parts of the world. So, and, and it, you know, who knows, maybe the guy was starving and that's the only way he mm. could feed his family. I don't, you know, I don't know, but, yeah, um, fair. and, and, you know, that's a big thing with conservation too. That's such a challenge is that oftentimes, I mean, when we're looking at, you know, the rhinos and the elephants and, and animals like that with all the poaching that's going on, it's, it's out of desperation, you know, the people don't they they don't have um you know financial means and a lot of the hunting that goes on like that is really because they don't have other good options you know so i'm not excusing it or pardoning yeah. it in any way shape or form um but you know a lot of the stuff boils down to economics and if we can provide alternatives you know in a lot of cases um Instead of, you know, poaching an animal, if we could provide some sort of services and alternatives and other job options, you know, where people can make a living. But, you know, they get so much money from an elephant tusk. There's nothing you mm. could give them that's going to equal that. So it's a yeah. it's such a complex, complicated issue when you're getting into wildlife conservation and and sort of what drives it and how to fix it, how to solve it. It's a lot, it's, it's above my pay grade. You know, it's mm -hmm. a really complicated issue. Yeah, we recently had Drea Burbank, who's down in the Amazon, I think still, even from the, the time that I interviewed her. And uh, what she does is she works with local groups to find other opportunities with carbon credits and, and other means so that instead of, you know, chopping down the forest they can preserve them and have like ecotourism and all these other things go on to preserve the rainforest there's a lot of stuff like that i think a lot of times when people read these things they think oh this person's you know doing this not great thing they think i would never do that there's like oh i'm like this morally superior person so i guarantee if you're starving and you're mm -hmm. in that position and you have someone you love that you want to take care of you're going to do worse things than that to get yourself yeah. taken care of but in a lot of situations, if you give them a different path, even if it's not making as much, a lot of them do take it because like, they don't want to be doing it. They just want to provide for their family, have a good life. Mm -hmm. It's the same as everyone else. I think sometimes people, I think it's called Sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R, where you stop and realize that other people have exactly a, a vibrant of a life as you, like they're sentient creatures. I think some, mm. it, it seems that sometimes people just walk through the world and, and like everyone else is like non-player characters and you're the only PC. And uh, that's a game way of thinking of things. But I think uh, for people listening in who think, if you are thinking, oh, I would never do that. If you were in those situations, and so creating economic opportunities, you know, maybe you know, if there's like a super 
uh, penguin rear for the eggs. That maybe there's like an avenue where that person like helps, you know, start uh, breeding right. programs to bring back the emperor penguins or something like the, the skills are there. They just need to be uh, utilized in the right ways. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what sand cob in South Africa. They have been hand raising uh, penguin chicks now for. Oh, gosh, I think it's 16 years now, their program, their chick bolstering project, because the species is highly endangered. You know, their numbers are crashing and they have, you know, learned how to very successfully hand raise penguin chicks. And so, you know, they have actually raised in the last 16 year, last 16 years, they have hand raised 10,000 African penguins and successfully released them into the wild. And that is actually about one third of the total population of the species now. So thanks mm. to that one breeding program, you know, they've, they've huge. yeah, it's huge. 30% of the whole population is chicks that they have hand raised. And without that program, you know, the species would be crashing very soon. You know, we, we'd mm. be looking at the extinction. So, um, so yeah, so it works, right? Hand raising, breeding, breeding them works. Mm -hmm. So yeah, wonder, we could use some more programs like that. I wonder how many chicks the, the average mating pair of those penguins produces and then you can calculate out that ten thousand. maybe it actually is going to be responsible for like 50 000 to sixty thousand just on the first generation or something uh, i think it's, uh, often when i read things they just say you know ten thousand. but it's also not it's not just ten thousand. it's like mm. ten thousand plus the first generation right. of the multiplier multiplier which is equally as exciting um it's like the like when people release turtles and like there's like these beaches full of turtles and then they come back and then they have the next generation, which is getting even bigger. It's like the multiplying effect, which is like one of those things that I think is really fascinating mm -hmm. when I hear about it. Well, and the interesting thing too, with at least with the African penguin, because it has been really studied so well, um, this program is that the human raised chicks have a much higher survival rate than parent raised mm. chicks. And they have, um, you know, more, uh, a greater survival to breeding age than parent raised. And that's probably due to the fact that, you know, when they're under human care, they're not going to release them into the wild until they're nice and fat and, you know, all their feathers are in and all the conditions are right. Whereas in the wild, you know, there might not be, I mean, where they live, there's, there's a lack of enough fish. So a lot, and the reason these, these chicks are being hand raised is because the parents abandon them because, the fish that they normally feed on is endangered and their populations are crashing. So, um, so a lot of these chicks get abandoned. Um, so yeah, so the people can do better at raising the chicks than the actual penguins can. So mm. it's really actually kind of important that we do step in and help them out if we can. Are there programs that aren't getting the credit in your opinion that they deserve in terms of they're doing great work like this, but maybe it's being unrecognized? I mean, in general, I don't know that many people know anything about any of these programs that are, you know, any of these places yeah. that are raising penguins, really. I mm. mean, I know about them because I'm in that world. And, you know, Sand Cob is probably the best known of all of them. There's the Yellow-Eyed Penguin Trust in New Zealand. There's Phillip Island in Australia with Little Blues. You know, some of these names, maybe some people have heard of. Um, but honestly, I... I don't, I doubt many people have heard of any of these places. So I think they could all use a little more, um, you know, boosting their visibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not fascinating. I, I didn't really know about them until you started telling me about them uh, five years ago. And now I'm like, 
I try to make newsletters and stuff so I can kind of keep abreast of everything because it's hard. It's uh, I recently interviewed someone who said if you're reading about it, you're not on the cutting edge of what's happening. It's like you have to like really be seeing what the people are doing. Mm-hmm. And then you get like what's actually like you're like kind of ahead of the curve. And mm-hmm. so as much as I can, I like to find out where like the action is and then learn more. Um, but we mentioned overfishing and uh, I found another article from The Guardian and it's uh, in August 2021. This is uh, re- more recent. So maybe maybe we'll uh, we'll get this one. But okay. the, in 20 in August 2021, the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, CCAMLR. Camlar. Why does everybody yeah. have to have Camlar? Camlar. I mean, they, they, yeah. They need to add like an AT at the end so they I need know. Camlar or something. But, <laughs> All these uh, are bad acronyms. Sandcob's <laughs> a bad acronym. Camlar's a bad, mm-hmm. ac- bad acronym. Yeah. Sorry. But they failed they failed uh again to mm. establish marine protection areas in the South Ocean, despite calls for conservation groups and scientific evidence of overfishing and habitat destruction. Can you speak about the, we all know it's going down, and I think I recently read a report in conjunction with this one, that uh, if people stopped fishing, and this is like a huge ass, we could not do this, but if we stopped fishing for like six years, the the whole world's oceans would rebound in like, in like two. Wow. Just like, it, like they're like, but no, you can't get people to do that because I think right. fish is like half of how everyone eats. But how, when you're out, when you're traveling, how do, how, how is overfishing, how, how do you, how are you seeing it when you're in your travels personally? Or what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's, it's not something that, you know, you can't kind of see it from above the surface, mm. right? Um, yeah. I mean, I know it's going on. I know that it's like the number two problem for penguins is, is starvation due to, you know, they believe starvation due to overfishing. Number one is starvation and other problems due to global warming. Um, So it's, it's clearly impacting penguins and many other species. Um, I kind of, I just kind of lost the question. Tell me again. Do you you think, um, do you think setting aside if they if the if oh camlar sorry <laughs> if they yeah, yeah. if they could set aside protected areas have we seen that to be an effective way to rebound yes. species yes okay so yes so um i remember now camlar was the first thing and yes yeah, so for example in again i'm going to go to south africa um mm-hmm. because that's where i you know i kind of follow the most i mean i know this is happening in other places but they did uh close off they did some experimental closures of the foraging grounds of penguins around some of their certain areas where they normally would be hunting near their breeding islands and they wanted to see you know they had a study like is because of course this is very controversial because the fishermen you know that's their livelihood right and what do you mean you're going to not let me fish in this area that's abundant of with fish? Um, but they're like, well, but the penguins are dying. So they did this temporary closure to study uh, the Percy Fitzpatrick Institute. And what they found was by closing off this area, I think it was a 15-kilometer radius around yeah. one of the breeding islands. That's and they small. found, Yeah. And they found that the penguins were expending 40% less energy on each of their hunting, uh, foraging, um, trips and, uh, 40% less time as well. And so they were able to get back to their chicks with more food, you know, and, and expending less energy and calories themselves. And so their survival rate and the chick survival rate was boosted. So they were, they now do have some areas, marine protected areas that are no fishing zones, but we need a lot more of them. And, 
And Camlar, you know, they have been trying, I mean, they did manage to protect a large portion of the Ross Sea finally, um, but there's typically, there's a few countries that just, you know, put on the brakes every single time. Like they think, oh, finally this year, we're going to get everybody to sign on and agree. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a few countries that, you know, are big whaling countries and they're like, nope, they won't sign. So it's it's a, I know, I know some people that are, you know, at those Camelar meetings every year. And I know it's a source of great frustration, um, but you know, they can only do what they can do. Yeah. Well, maybe we need to like hire some privateers or something and take down the, <laughs> the whaling ships or get them to stay out. Right. But, Who's in Greenpeace doing that and Sea Shepherd? They're doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, the I remember that they kept getting arrested. I, mm-hmm. But I guess if you're in international waters, I don't know the rules of international waters and what people do to pirates. But the no, uh, but uh, I wanted to ask you about habitat loss, which I think is related to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a study as well. The uh, in in 2022, we talked about these penguins, king penguin, uh, king penguins. In January 2022, I study found that king penguins on the Crozet Islands in the South Indian Ocean are at risk mm-hmm. of losing their breeding grounds due to rising sea levels caused by climate change. With up to 70% of the island's suitable habitable habitat pro- projected to be lost by the end of the century, the for for these animals that have found their their breeding sites as the the levels have increased have we have we not really seen them adapt to a higher level or how 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 do we see the animals adapting to these rising sea levels because this one suggests that like it's going to be pretty bad for at least the the king penguins Mm. this is the bbc um you know it's interesting that i know on at least in antarctica on the antarctic peninsula that and it's not because of um sea level change yet it's more because of uh, precipitation change. So hmm. something that most people don't realize about Antarctica is it's technically classified as a desert because it's yeah. actually extremely dry. Yeah. Um, there's very little precipitation there. So most of this, you know, snow and ice, it's been there for thousands, 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 thousands of years and it's just getting blown around in the wind, but there's actually not a lot of snow or rain falling. Um, however, you know, over the last 50 years, temperatures have risen dramatically. And this has caused an increase in precipitation in both the form of rain and snow. Um, And so, you know, when you have these warmer temperatures, there's more moisture held in the air. So a lot of people say, well, it's snowing. So how could it be global warming? But that's happening because it's warming. Mm -hmm. So it's a little counterintuitive. Um, But because of this, what we have seen on the Antarctic Peninsula is where some penguin colonies are dispersing, they're moving. So they are sort of adapting in real time because they're leaving a colony because Mm. normally they might, you know, want a snow-free place to lay their eggs and raise their chicks. And now all of a sudden there's snow there or there's so much rain that the nests are flooding. Um, So we have seen some movement, for example, some of the Gentoo penguin colonies are moving further north on the peninsula. Um, some Adelie colonies sort of disappeared and they nobody knew where they went, but then they discovered some other, like north of the peninsula, some large Adelie, Adelie colonies. And they're like, well, maybe they went there because those seem to be increasing. We don't know if it's those same penguins, but theoretically it could be. So, so they are seeing, I think it seems to be in real time, 
that some of these penguins are adapting. So I would assume uh, for in, on the in Crozet that if the sea level rose, that the penguins would uh, you know just go to higher ground as as long mm. as they could, as long as there's higher ground to go to. Yeah, that makes sense. The and then I think probably the issue is that maybe they start like running into each other's elbow room. Mm-hmm. Like right now, Antarctica is mm-hmm. quite you know expansive. They right. have some separation but i think there's some penguins that don't mind having them as neighbors but eventually it might be of a competition issue there's not enough land to go around right yeah exactly yeah you could run out of of land space of breeding space yep mm-hmm. yeah the the from a you are do penguins represent anything either as a food web or as a potential to learn from in terms of so like i'm thinking of frogs Wait, say, i missed your first part of your sentence what did you say yeah, uh, I was just setting up the the question, which is, what do penguins have? Um, uh, I'll go with what, like what I was thinking. I think that okay. like now I forgot where I where I started. Sorry, to, but the, <laughs> I no, missed the good. word that you said, and so I was like, I can't follow what comes after it, mm-hmm. but I don't know what that word was. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. So I'm I'm picturing and imagining frogs. So when when something happens to frog species, it, it's like a, a keystone species that re- that shows you some other stuff that's going on, mm-hmm. and they have other value as well. Wh- what are penguins value in terms of like the food web or how we look at them do they have anything like that where penguins have like if you're like an an evil utilitarian person looking at penguins and thinking like oh should i care about them going away or not um do they have like frog value i guess absolutely yes yes Yes. they are also a keystone species they're an indicator Mm. species so penguins are considered an indicator species so you know they're near the top of the food chain um you know, there's not a lot of things that prey on them. So, uh, and they are considered, you know, if, if we see that their populations are crashing, that is an indication to us that there is something going on in their ecosystem, right? So they're sort of raising, you know, waving this this flag, like, hey, you know, check out the problem here. We, we You got to fix this because our populations are getting smaller and smaller very, very rapidly. So what I will say, and I haven't said this yet, um, just to sort of give an example of of um, sort of how alarming it it really is, is that thirteen of the eighteen penguin species are listed as um, threatened, near threatened, or endangered, and and any one of those levels means they are eventually at risk of extinction. So it doesn't have to just be endangered to mean they're at risk of going extinct. Any one of those means eventually that's the path they're on, um, and. Uh, most of them, their their species, their populations have crashed fifty to ninety percent over the last fifty to one hundred years. Hmm. So, for example, the African penguin has their population has crashed ninety eight percent in the last century. So we have two percent the population today of of what it was a hundred years ago. That's dramatic. That's very hmm. dramatic. Um, and they're not the only species that is seeing a crash like that. The Galapagos penguin right now, there's about 1,200 left. The yellow-eyed penguin, about 1,500 left. And, you know, all, a lot of these birds, we're, we're looking at, um, you know, numbers that won't be sustainable much longer. So, so yeah, so they're in trouble. And, and that's what they're sort of alerting us, like, there's a problem that we need to mm-hmm. take care of it in in our environment, you know. Mm-hmm. It yeah. sounds like the they they let you know how much 
like fish krill and stuff is in the the water like you can mm -hmm. watch them and see that as well um is there anything that we can learn from the five species that aren't endangered to apply to the ones that are endangered to to save them mm. good question well you know three of them are in antarctica so <laughs> they're as far away from man as they can be mm. the right? yeah helps a lot <laughs> So, um, and actually, yeah, and the others too are in very, for the most part, in very remote locations. Not all of them, um, but most of them are in very remote locations. So um, I think that's that's probably the lesson is, you know, the further away they are from man, from where we live, the better off they are. You know, mm -hmm. the less interference they have, the less direct impact. You know, we still have... You know, I mean, for the emperor penguin to be listed as endangered, well, they're in Antarctica and they're in the most remote interior part of Antarctica, you know, the furthest away from human interference. Yet what we are doing is still impacting them. So I think the biggest lesson really is that everything that we do has this ripple effect, has an impact on an animal we would never even see in our lifetime that lives as far away from us as it possibly could yet it is still being harmed by us so mm -hmm. i think there's a there's a big lesson there yeah if you if you had if we made you czar a penguin not just penguins are <laughs> but like czar of the of, czar of any land or anything touching the penguins which seems like you'd have global reach but the what would be some of the practices you want to see us adopt what would you want to see the world do to help the penguins or in, in general anything anything uh, two degrees of Kevin Bacon from uh, penguins. What, what would you want to work on? Like, what do you see? What would be like your vision for things? Yeah. I mean, so when people say, what could I do to help penguins? Mm -hmm. You know, there's everything from what I started off saying earlier uh, in sort of a very broad way is to reduce our own impact on the planet, especially when it comes to global warming. So, you know, there's all these footprint calculators online that you can go to and find out how much carbon am I putting into the atmosphere every year. And most of these footprint calculators will also give you a lot of tips and advice for things you can do to reduce your impact. I mean, just like simple things. If you're shopping online, you know, if there's something that's in California and I can get the same item in Boston near where I live, but I have to pay more to buy it in Boston, I'll buy it in Boston because there's mm -hmm. less of a footprint right? So just little things. And I know, you know, it's a big, big, big issue. And it's the corporations that are really doing the most polluting. But if every person, you know, does what they can together, it we can make a difference. So mm -hmm. in a broad sense, that's one of the first things I always say, because global warming is the number one threat to, to all penguins today. Um, if people want to do something very direct, I always recommend to donate to one of these many places throughout the Southern Hemisphere, one of these rescue centers or conservation groups. And um, on my website, thepenguinlady.com, um, there is a on the navigation bar in the top right. If you there's a button that says help penguins, and the drop down, I think it's the second drop down is donate. And if you click on that, there is a very extensive personally vetted list of all of these mm. places. Like I know these people, I, you know, can vouch for them. These are all legitimate. The money is going towards, you know, the penguins and the work. Um, they're all very dedicated people. And in fact, I've got to add a few places to that. Uh, I need to update my site because um, there are a few new places. 
within the last few years. Um, so you can support them and the great work that they are doing because they all really are doing vitally, vitally important work to protect the species that you know are in their region and to um, help them survive and thrive moving forward. Mm -hmm. There's a an organization, I think it's called Hartford International or something mm. like this, where they, they do a fundraiser every year. And I, th I think it's like a million that they try to do, but they have these like Kickstarter-esque uh tiers where it's where they say hey, if you vote if you donate ten dollars it we we're gonna give like three chickens to this uh underprivileged family and yeah. this is the effect it has and so i was wondering if they're i could see you leading this because i think you just you're always out uh when i'm thinking of penguins and doing great work if there's a potential for all these organizations to tie together and have an umbrella campaign to raise you know million or whatever and then break it down increment to like the different conservation projects that could be achieved through that i think that'd be pretty powerful because one it you, like people usually pretty fury with like 20 bucks if they see like such a, a big impact mm -hmm. and when people donate they like to see where it goes mm -hmm. a lot of nonprofits. i've been recently pulling tax returns from nonprofits and stuff and uh it's really disturbing to see when people want to do well how it gets way late so i really love that you have a curated list where things can be great but I, I also imagine like maybe there's a potential there for that list to come together and do like a herbert international type campaign mm -hmm. you know uh, make like an ultimate list, like, hey, with like this amount of money, we can do all these types of things. But this this year, we're going to look for this amount. Uh, I, I don't know. What do you what do you think about this idea? Maybe this is something that people listening, we could all like, you know, clamor together and do it. <laughs> I Well, it's I, I like it. I'd like to explore that idea more. I mean, I know that, you know, every three years, all of the penguin researchers around the world and in all of these people that are, you know, the places like Sand Cobb and Yellow Eyed Penguin Trust um, and people in zoos and aquariums. And that's how I got into doing this, well, every three years is the International Penguin Conference or the IPC. And it's held in a different uh, country every three years. And that's when all of these people come together, the researchers share their research findings. And, uh, you know, a lot of collaborative things start at these IPCs. So, and there is an IPC coming up and I won't be going, um, but I still am in touch with a lot of those people. So, you know, maybe I can put a bug in some people's ears and Mm -hmm. You know, because I'm sure, yeah. you know, I mean, we've we've all been working together collaboratively, collaboratively for decades. Um, but I don't know if any's been, anyone has done something like that. Not that I've heard yeah. of. And it's an interesting concept. So, yeah, there yeah. was a there's a group called New Harvest. And I, I've been I've been like saying this to them for years. And uh, they uh, they accidentally did it where this list this past year, they're not doing the conference this year. Makes me deeply sad. Uh, Isha and Co. I hope you do it next year. Uh, but the last year they said, "Hey, we're running out of money, and if we don't get some money, we might have to like close down and like all these you know things." So they were like, "Hey, can we raise money right now?" And they raised a million dollars in fifteen minutes with <gasps> the people there and the people like listening in. And so uh, that's what? what I was telling people: like, everyone is already like bought in and cares. And so if you just like put like one of those like you know blood donations where it's like a little thermostat and then you have the little increments and stuff like it doesn't have to be complicated but if you just say hey we're starting the, the day this is our goal here are organizations they're going to talk about the different conservation that we're going to do as we meet these mile markers and um and there's like uh, philanthropic that can like do matching donations so they can do like i'm i'm a pseudo wealthy person i'm going to mm -hmm. put fifty thousand matching donations so every person who donates 20 bucks is actually donating 40 and stuff like that so i always feel like stuff like that where everyone comes together uh, yeah. there's a unique opportunity to just galvanize it and do something with it that's so what platform did they do this on do you they, know they just did it 
They just did it off the cuff. But like, I, you can. That's crazy. Have, yeah, you could do like a comp. I'm, I'm sure there's a way that either already exists or that it could be wired up to have that type of like funding thing where people can donate from wherever they are, especially with like Bitcoin and stuff that exists nowadays. Like, I'm sure there's like some type of like decentralized way of, of uh, managing it. But it's just one of those things I think about quite often. And the different areas that I'm aware of, the biggest thing that people talk about is like funding and then mm -hmm. what result comes from the funding. Uh, usually people are being, using lasers to do work and they're getting such outsized results from it. And so I feel like there was just a structure, a format where people knew, you know, hey, there's gonna be a surprise this, this, you know, three year conference. Mm -hmm. And then day one, hey, here's our objective. And then like every couple of, of you know, hours or whatever, you just update it. Um, I mean, mm. they did it like in like 20 minutes and they raised, you know, a million from a group of people that, I mean, like some of them are affluent, but not a lot of them. So it was, that's, that's pretty cool. Wild. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've really put, so I, I, this could be a really cool thing if they potentially did it during the IPC, mm -hmm. like when they're actually yeah, all there. there together, that yeah. would be and very they add cool. A, it's really easy to add an online component to conferences. I'm so, always surprised when someone has a, a in-person conference, if they don't just buy like, a, like $500 worth of um, camera equipment and then get like one of these online conferencing tools, like Hopper or whatever it's called. And then you can just wire it all together and then people can like vote on the questions for people to ask. And even people there can ask questions, which also benefits to uh, introverts who don't want to speak up in conferences, but they could still have their question read. Mm. Um, I, I, so you can have the people there, you can have people like virtually there. And regardless, they just built a, a larger community. But yeah, it's, it's something I think about a lot, but I want to like spend, you know, our time. But I just, <laughs> you know, if, if you like it, you know, uh, I do I like it all the time. Yes. Yeah. My yeah. problem is usually I don't have enough time to go and like do it for people. So I try to like, hey, here's an idea and we can talk about it if you want. But um, so some of the, this is the power of people working together, by the way. Mm. But so human disturbance on a uh, negative side. And I, I'm, I imagine if you saw this, you would just like swap people. <laughs> but so in, but in November, 2020, and this is from the Guardian as well. Uh, the, there was a video of tourists chasing and harassing a group of king penguins in the Falkland Islands, which went viral. I don't know what viral means in this context, but sparking mm -hmm. outrage and causing for stricter regulations on tourist activities, which is probably why you have to be 15 feet away, all these different things. The I, I just I really find it hard to believe that people who are there, they probably aren't going alone. So how do they hardly? I, I mean, have you ever, ever seen anyone act this way? I just feel like it's a no because you would swat them. You'd be like, oh, I, I see what you're doing. I'd be all over them. I would be all over them. Do you see that cliff over there? And you're just like, yeah, dude, there's something really cool on the edge of it. <laughs> it's like, oh no, they slipped. <laughs> Never to be seen Oops. again. Oopsie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. I, no, I imagine I, you're just like supportive of not this type of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I would, I'm for, you know, I am mm -hmm. not shy about speaking up when I see any sort of, you know, people harassing any sort of animal. I mean, literally I live on a pond and about 10 years ago, I went out and chased some people because they were in their motorboat. They were chasing um, a great blue heron and like literally ch like right on its tail. And it's like squawking and flying and trying to get away from them. And I like went out on my kayak and I just like, I've never paddled so fast in my life and lit into them. I, you know, like they never came back, but no, yeah. I would definitely be the first one there telling them to, you know back off yeah in the united states the fbi if someone's doing any animal cruelty you can actually report it to them it's one of those it's a factor they look for for to the fbi thanks wow yeah the fbi i think they I, i'm pretty sure you can report animal cruelty to the fbi wow. it's one of the key indicators for like 
sociopathic and mm-hmm. serial killerish behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, those people, those people are probably doing other negative things. I mean, this was just really what it was, was like a mm-hmm. drunk dad and son, like an adult son, like, you know, 40 and, yeah. and the dad was maybe 60, but they were just drunk and stupid. Um, yeah. And they no, didn't live I, on the pond, you know, they weren't, yeah. they weren't local. I mean, there's just so many things about that that reveal aspects of their character. Yes. You know, it's, I, I, I finally believe like alcohol just, and it like, it reduces, you know, your thinking, but it's still like fundamentally yourself. I don't know when people get drunk, they're about the same. I don't know. They're probably a little more loquacious. I don't drink. So it's been a while, but I, I feel like when I was drunk, it was about the same, but if it, I probably just wanted more hugs, that's about it. But, um, <laughs> but is there, um, for for tourists is there anything as when you visit yourself is there anything that you wish that they had in place to either make it uh either a better experience or to protect the animals that you see that they're not doing are there room for is there opportunity here for tourists to do a better job um well i think there's always an opportunity because there's always some stupid tourists that are doing stupid things i'm sorry i hate to say it but it's true you know there are people that get too close people want to get close 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 you know and they want to get the selfie with the animal now now that you know social media they're all like i want the selfie with the you know with the seal on the beach and so people i think social media has actually exacerbated that issue of people getting too close and harassing wildlife it really i think is a big piece of that um so yeah it would be like i think the issue would be just keeping people far enough away and like no selfie with the animal you know like Unless, you know, the sort of this type of situation that, say, I was describing in in South Georgia, where it's a very controlled situation, you've got, you Mm. know, you've got your naturalist guides there and they're telling you explicitly what you can and cannot do. And, you know, people follow the rules because the people generally that are going on a trip like that, you know, they're mature, they are, they love nature, they, they respect the wildlife, they you know, they're in awe and they're just, um, you know, they're, they're not the type of people that are going to go harass the animal, you know, and they're not mm. drunk on shore. Um, I think, you know, alcohol can certainly exacerbate or other, you know, things can exacerbate people's behavior. Um, so yeah, I think it would be primarily just, you know, if they could no fence alcohol. off areas that, mm. so that there wasn't access to some of these areas where the penguins are trying to nest, Um, And, you know, some places have done that, but um, not, not a lot. Um, Yeah. It would just be sort of controlling the behavior. It sounds like if you, you know, maybe a little breathalyzer before you step on the ice and say (laughs) it's for your own safety because you drown faster with this, I don't know, (laughs) make an excuse. And then the other one I'm hearing is uh, maybe they have professional photographers that will just go around and take like like imagine like imagine like wedding photographers but for these excursions and there's like two or three and they just take it for everybody and then you and then you can be like hey you know i was there with diane i didn't even know she was there because i was like over here doing something else and then you got it's like a little social thing there uh maybe that those two things can there's a a movie called the secret life of walter Mitty, and there's oh, no yeah, yeah. It's like, i love this movie there was a photographer who was there taking pictures and i don't know if photographers do this but i just like this concept where sometimes he wouldn't take the picture and he would just enjoy the moment yes and there's an element of like when you're trying to capture the moment you're not getting the moment and so maybe those two things they would be able to remember the moment and they'd be able to appreciate the moment because professional photographers are taking care of things it's funny you say that movie because i actually saw that movie on my way back from antarctica Mm. on the plane and i loved it 
And, and I actually, you know, the first time I went to Antarctica was in 2009 and, and, you know, I had started my company a few years earlier. And so I was so focused on, and I was there as a guest lecturer on the ship. Um, but I was so focused when we were on land, you know, when I wasn't interpreting for people, cause that was part of my role was just taking as many photos that I could so that I could use them in my educational programs when I got back home. So, and we were only there for a short time. I think it was maybe five days. Um, And so I was just, you know, camera in front of my face the entire time. And I realized after I got home, I'm like, I was so wrapped up in working and getting so many photos that I never just sat back, excuse me, I never just sat back and just took it in. And I remember saying, if I ever get back there again, I'm going to make sure, like, I know I'm still going to take photos because I'm a photographer. I love, you know, I still want to capture as many photos as I can. And I always take like 20,000 photos when I'm there. Um, But I'm going to make a point to put down my camera from time to time and just be in the moment. And so on each of, you know, my next three trips, I did make sure to to just be and and to just take it in. I mean, I certainly took a million photos still, but you know, I think it is we we miss so much sometimes and we're just constantly mm-hmm. trying to capture it, you know, and and again, this whole sort of selfie culture, social media culture that we live in where oh, I got to get a picture for, you know, and I never really think I never think to take a selfie. Like I have missed mm-hmm. so many opportunities like with, you know, people that why did you take a picture when you were with, you know, Sylvia Earl or whoever? I'm like, I just didn't think of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm of a generation that that's just not the first, it's not top of mind. Um, but I do, I think you, you miss a lot when you miss being in the moment, you miss being with the people you're with, you miss being in nature when all you're focused on is getting the picture or putting this on Instagram, you know, like just be, just be, experience, feel mm-hmm. it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Be present. I think you also remember it better. I think the, yeah. the times where you're just living in the moment, it sinks in a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You have a little bit more details that you can pull back on. I would agree. There's, there's sort of there's like, it's like a compounding effect of everything. Mm-hmm. You need to put the camera down, but you don't, I think maybe the fear might be you put the camera down, you miss the moment, but right. you're not gonna miss the moment because you remember it. You remember Hopefully. it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the let's see there's like a couple more topics uh, i just want to be respectful of your time as well um so invasive species in august 2020 a colony of rats oh man i wrote this yesterday and i like i write things and it, uh, and then i forget that i write them but anyway so the <laughs> a colony of rats it's like i didn't think this was that i thought i put it earlier but uh in 2020 a colony of rats introduced my apologies in 2020 a colony of rats were introduced to a remote island of Gao in South Atlantic, threatening Goth. the survival of millions of Ga. Goth it's Islands. G O U G H. Yeah. Goth. Really, it's Goth. Mm-hmm. Goth with Goth. an F or a T. With an F. With a T. Goth. Okay, Goth. Yeah. Goth. 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 All right. So <laughs> That's okay. Threatening the, I'm like mildly dyslexic too, so it's always fun to uh, hear myself read these <laughs> on the on the back. But threatening the survival of uh, millions of seabirds, including endangered Tristan albatrosses. Uh, Atlantic yellow-nosed albatrosses, as well as northern rockhopper penguins. Mm. Uh, well, first of all, have you heard of this? Like people putting, I think they probably just swam there. No one did this on purpose. I, I want to believe this. But when it comes to the places that have penguins, I know well, that's one of the features that brought down 
the uh, the dodo bird, they weren't stupid. There were rats there. They were eating their eggs. Mm. So, when to what extent are invasive species a part of bringing down uh, penguins? Big problem. So I had not heard about this again. You're like, I don't know why I'm not hearing these stories. Um, because I know they went through a huge rat eradication program on South Georgia Island, actually. Um, because the rats won't, I mean, and this is very gruesome. They don't just eat the eggs. They actually eat the chicks and the, uh, the adults that are sitting on the nest because the adults won't leave the nest. And so they start eating like, you know, biting them on the back of their necks and stuff. It's just gruesome. Um, so yeah, it's a huge problem because they, they start overrunning the place, you know, because they don't have, the rat doesn't have any natural predators. And so they start overrunning. And so they have to come in and do these massive eradication programs. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big problem in a lot of these islands. And like you said, it's probably, you know, the rats probably swam off of a ship you know, because that's how they, it's the ships, the rats are on the ships. Um, mm -hmm. So it probably, you know, if a ship sank or who knows how they wound up on shore, but then they just, the, the populations explode because they don't have any predators on, on these islands. Um, yeah. yeah. There, in one of the 007 movies, the guy has Bond tied up, which seems to be the case with any of the movies, but he talks about how to kill rats. Like you put a drum and then you like have like some type of like thing that they want to get in the drum. And then all the rats get in there and then you leave them into there until they start eating each other and there's two oh. left. And then you release them into the wild because now they now they have a taste for rat and they'll only eat other rats. <gasps> oh. I don't know if that's a thing or not. God. Have you seen this? Is that I true? I have not heard that. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. It was from a fiction gruesome, store. But yeah. if it's true, hey, if it works, I yeah. mean it's that's pretty gruesome. I haven't yeah. heard that. I don't know if it's true or not. I, I know this I do know. If anyone knows if that's true, please let me know. That's 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 crazy, and I just thought of it. But the I do know that if you pamper rats, they have a social hierarchy where some of them, even if you give them all the resources they want, they'll stratify their hierarchy. If they put them in like a like a a box or whatever, and mm -hmm. you have all the food coming in, there'll be some that get pampered, like the one percent with humans, where like they get all the stuff or whatever. And then if you take the food away, they don't know how to survive, and then they get eaten. Wow, yeah. I mean, rats are very intelligent. Yeah, yeah. They're like they're like humans. They, yeah, people study rats to understand humans. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. If you uh, if you have like a kid or a human, and you try and take their thing away, they'll like they'll exhibit behavior just like a rat. A, hmm. a rat, if they're trying to protect, like it's like kibble or whatever it's eating, will turn its back to you just like a human. Sometimes when I, I'll see people interacting. It's like, oh, I know what they're doing because a rat does that. <laughs> so like we have so many common behaviors. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I don't know if you ever like uh, someone tries taking something from you and you just like turn your back and like go into a corner, but that's like extreme rat behavior. Yeah, so rats are an endangered uh, 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 species that comes in. Are there other species hmm. that are affecting penguins? Yeah, in this way. Yeah, yeah, especially in New Zealand. Um, that's a, hmm. a lot of different introduced predators there: um, stoats, foxes, ferrets, um, types of snakes. Um, Oh, there's more. There's uh, and there's even been some birds. I mean, there's a lot of mm. introduced predators, um, and even just things like cats and dogs and and sheep, sheep trampling the nests because like New Zealand is like eighty thousand sheep to every one person. You know, it's like so many sheep there. So they they even you know are so abundant that they end up trampling the nests. Um, and then dogs and cats, you know, off they go and and kill just for sport you know, for the, them, it's just sport. Um, and mm -hmm. so I know in Australia, like with the little blue penguins, 
um, just recently, and this happens, you know, from time to time, they have laws, you know, your dog is going to be on a leash on the beach because of the penguins, but people, you know, obviously not everybody pays that. attention to that. Yeah. And, and a dog, like just recently, a dog went and just went from nest to nest and just killed like 60 penguins and they just kill them. They don't, you know, they're not eating them. They're not, it's just sport. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so introduced predators are definitely a big problem for for some penguins more than others, but um mm. yeah, especially now in Gough Island that sounds pretty bad and in New Zealand a lot of them have an issue with that because there's a lot of different penguins actually in New Zealand as well. Are there any conservation works going on currently that you like to combat these things outside of the one you mentioned previously, but I don't know if you mentioned the name or is an acronym that I didn't catch. But yeah, no, so who's, who's, who's counteracting these things? No, the one, so, um, yeah, I can't think of the name of the one. It might mm. be the South Georgia Trust, I think might be the one that oversaw that operation. Um, yeah, I can maybe, you know, give you some, get back to you and, and maybe you yeah. can put the link, the some links yeah. in. Yeah, with some of the places. I mean, uh, that particular program on that island, they managed to eradicate them all. So um, as far as I know, unless, Sweet. you know, they've had a resurgence um, that that sort of it's they've done it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, you know, they may they may be able to um, give me information about other ones, other programs that might be happening. Sweet. Yeah, And then yeah. uh, people look for those because maybe it's, there's something in your your backyard because there's. There's people in the the South Pacific. I don't know if Australia counts as that region, but there's people who listen in from the, from the you know that region, so maybe they can then help out. You'd be surprised how often there's something going on in your backyard, and you just like there's no alert for it or something. You just have to like go for a walk. I discover things all the time. I just go for a walk in a city. It's like oh wow, there's an arcade here. It's like why don't you have a bigger sign? But uh, one other element that I'm curious about in terms of uh, affecting the population of penguins is disease. And I think it was early mm. 20s. My notes on this were sparse. It's from National Geographic, so it better be right. But <laughs> there was an outbreak of avian influenza, which mm. killed thousands of penguins on the beaches of South Africa, mm -hmm. raising, you know, obviously concerns for the whole po penguin population. How are viruses and diseases affecting penguins? It's pretty bad, actually. That it's there have been a lot of different viruses actually over the last hmm, almost decade now. Like in in uh, New Zealand with a yellow-eyed penguin, there were like some unidentified viruses and bacterias and things that were killing a lot of those penguins, um, things that they just couldn't figure out what is this and how do we control it? Um, and in South Africa, so now we have, there's an avian flu that's, that's wreaking havoc now. So, um, yeah, viruses and, and bacterias and weird illnesses. And uh, they think a lot of this is exacerbated by global warming uh, because you've mm -hmm. got this mosquito population are increasing and, you know, sort of the conditions are right because it's warmer because of, you know, the conditions caused by climate change. Um, so it's all sort of wrapped up into this, you know, it might seem like, well, how is that, you know, related to climate change? But it is. So, mm -hmm. So again, it sort of all boils down to, for the most part, like if we can, if we can combat climate change, if we can get things back where they should be in terms of our climate, we might be able to resolve a lot of these problems that we're seeing right now from starvation to viral outbreaks to, you know, um, breeding colony collapse because of too much rain and 
so yeah, that it kind of, it sounds like it might all be very separate things, but they're actually, a lot of them are very related and they're related to climate change. Is there anything today that's work being done to affect avian or other diseases or like are there groups that go out there and like, I don't know, give them shots or something. Like, what are we I, doing that happens? We just let them die. Well, I mean, there's, you know, sort of supportive care for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if they are working on pot- maybe a vaccine for, for some mm-hmm. of these avian flus. Um, for the most part it's it's supportive care, just trying to keep them alive and get them through the hurt, you know, get them through the worst of it and then get them, you know, fattened up again and healthy and back out and breeding. Um, but you know, a lot of wildlife medicine is we're figuring it out as we go along, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's very different than, you know, domestic, domestic, uh, veterinary care for domestic animals where, you know, we've been doing this for so long and, and we, we really know so much because we've been working every day with hundreds of animals. Whereas, you know, you're not working every day with hundreds of penguins, you know, Mm -hmm. so it takes more time to develop the, the science and the medicine behind it. Well, I think it's a beautiful image of a bunch of penguins going into like a little hospital room. They have little beds and people are taking care of them. I'm a, I'm sure that's not what happens, but that's what I'm picturing. And I, I like the image, so I'm going to go with that. <laughs> the, uh, what what books outside of your own, which is going to be in the uh, show notes, would you recommend people check out? Oh, my God. that's a There's so many. Um, oh, if I'd known ahead of time, I would have had a little library of books here to show mm-hmm. you. I'll have to send you a list. But I think the first one that pops to mind, and this is, really for the penguin geeks out there um, is by D. Borsma and uh, Pablo Borboroglu. And it's called Penguins, I'm trying to think of the subtitle, A Natural History. Hmm. And it's um, the most recent compilation of every, it's a really deep dive into every single species. And each chapter is written by like the leading global expert in that species, the researcher that's been, you know, studying it for decades. And so um, Poppy, well, Pablo's nickname is Poppy. Poppy and Dee um, edit it. They, they kind of put the book together, but each chapter is by a different researcher, um, including them. Uh, and so for the real penguin geeks who really want to like know everything about penguins and this particular species, that is sort of like the penguin Bible um, that I would recommend. And actually I, I just last year, I think it is for, um, shepherd. There's a new book list thing that people can say, Hey, if I'm interested in X, Y, Z, and you can go to this website and what books are recommended by an expert. So they ask experts Mm. to recommend five books, what, what they recommend. And so I did a list of penguin books for adults and a list of penguin books for kids. So I can send you the links for those because those would be definitely sort of my favorite, my top favorite books for adults and my top favorite books for kids that are all nonfiction. No, they're all nonfiction. Um, so I'll, I can send you a link for those. Sweet. Are yeah. you working on a, a peng- the Great Penguin Escape Part 2? They've come uh, home, I The don't Great know. Penguin Rescue. So, you know, I've always wanted to write a children's version of the book because this is written for adults. This book right here is the one, um, my first book for kids. Pengu- mm-hmm. all, all about penguins discover life on land and in the sea. And, um, this came out in December, 2020. Um, and this is more sort of like a 
basic biology and behavior of penguins for kids. Um, but I love the illustrations. Like this guy, Ray oh, yeah, Shule. They're, they're gorgeous. They're absolutely. Huh? Tell freak me out, even though they don't attack humans. <laughs> um, no, his illustrations are gorgeous. He's in the UK. Mm. And oh, here's my favorite one in the book um, that just took my breath away when I saw it. Wow. I mean, for people listening, it's like a horde of penguins with, uh, I think, an albatross. And it's just like the whole vista looks beautiful. Yeah, these are these are king penguins. So this is basically like when I was describing, sorry for the people that aren't watching this on video. Um, when I was describing being on South Georgia amidst this colony of, you know, hundreds of thousands of king penguins, that's essentially what this looks mm. like. And these, I think, wow. are sheer waters um, uh, that are, yeah. So, um, so that's my first kid's book. I do want to write a children's version of The Great Penguin Rescue. Um, and I've got other book ideas for both adults and kids that I haven't mm. started working on yet, but I've got, I've got ideas going. Yeah. Mm. It'd be yeah. interesting if you could find one that's just coming from the egg and you put like a GPS tracker on its head and then you track it through its entire life. And then you make a trilogy of books of it, of you imagining what it's like to be that, that bird from its mm. point of view, like this is what it's like to grow up. Like imagine like a, like a hormonal teenager as it's like trying to like go around and find bird stuff and then you know the last part of its life where it has like grandkids or something i don't know that's like anthropomorphized and i don't know if they see uh grandkids or they just see their immediate <laughs> together that i'd read that 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 would make you cry at the end it's like one of those like dog stories where the dog gets lost but about penguins then it comes home i tear up for those things and i don't i don't care the, I, 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 but um the for for uh people 25 to 35 who wanted to get into conservation or mm -hmm. do more work with penguins specifically uh outside of what we talked about previously is there anything that you recommend oh gosh so if you wanted to work with penguins if you wanted to work with them in the wild then you know it really helps to you have to have an advanced degree mm -hmm. so and and basically a phd you know so it, but you know you can certainly go as an assistant field researcher without a, an advanced degree um but it's definitely, you know, if you're in high school or beyond and you're thinking about that as a career, you really have to be studying the sciences, you know, um, and thinking about an advanced degree. If you wanted to do what I had done, which is I worked at the New England Aquarium for nine years. So I was in the zoo and aquarium world. And so that a lot of that was, you know, hands-on caretaking, raising chicks, educating the public, doing the conservation work. It was while I was at the aquarium that I had the experience that led to this book, The Great Penguin Rescue. Um, you know, I went over to South Africa and helped manage the rescue of 40,000 penguins from an oil spill. And that was because, you know, they had, they called on zoo and aquarium people from around the world to come help because we had the day-to-day -day experience working with the species. And we had the day-to-day -day experience managing and training and supervising volunteers. So um, there were about 110 of us that came in staggered shifts to help manage the 12 and a half thousand inexperienced volunteers who showed up to help. Uh, who they are the heroes of this story because without them we could not have saved all those those forty thousand penguins. Um, but if you wanted to do that type of work, 
again, you need to have, you don't have to have an advanced degree, but you, for the most part, you do have to have a bachelor degree in science, some sort of science. Mine was in um, animal science with a specialty in veterinary nursing. So that was my route to doing it. Um, and, you know, if you're younger and you're thinking, I want to do either one of those, what I would recommend is to start volunteering as soon as you can, you know, as soon as you're old enough um, at, you know, animal shelters or or vet hospitals or zoo and aquarium science centers doing any sort of animal care, animal handling, animal education that you can so that you're learning, you're getting some hands-on experience because that's important. And you're figuring out like, is this really the right path for me or not? Because it's it's a it's a lot of hard work. It's not a lot of pay. So you really have to be very deeply passionate about you, what you're doing and your mission for, you know, your reason for doing it. Um, you're not going to get rich doing it but you might have a really adventurous and exciting and fulfilling life doing it. So, mm -hmm. um, but it's good to get clear on that early on um, because it's a lot of dirty, not glamorous work. Um, you know, you're getting bitten by penguins and pooped on by penguins and spat on by, you know, kids that are looking in the exhibit and, you know, so um, I always, always, always recommend to volunteer. And also that's important if you are, interested in the zoo and aquarium world because 95% of the people that are hired are, they come from that volunteer and intern pool. So it's mm. very difficult to get hired if you're, you know, if you haven't been there at all and they don't know you at all. So mm. that's, that's a big part of that world is volunteering and interning to get your foot in the door. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Cause it's like you, they get to know who you are. Mm-hmm. Versus yes. just someone off the street. You're just setting yourself up for success. The, I, I, it reminded me of uh, a question I wanted to ask you. I don't know how this reminded me of it, but the uh, if you're going and hanging out with the, the being a tourist and you can't have you can't go to them, but they can come to you. Are there any rules about just like being covered in krill and like fish? Like if you just like like rolled around. It's like <laughs> if if I was visiting a cat and I wanted to play with that, I'd roll around like catnip. But like, do people do this? Is there a regulation to stop it? Because that's what I would do. <laughs> Yeah, I I haven't seen that, but you you could be the first. You might be the first to do it. I probably well. don't want to be the first. But be like, <laughs> it's like when a sign exists, and it's like you cannot bobsled down the street. And there's like no reason why you do that. But the, uh, I I don't want a sign named after me in that way. But the the <laughs> the uh, last question is, and I'm pretty sure you're going to say no on this, but I just have to ask. So, in have you ever seen Avatar: Last Airbender? No, I've seen the first Avatar, but I haven't seen any of the others. Is that the first one? I think you're talking about James Cameron Avatar. Yeah, I'm talking about the uh, the cartoon show from Nickelodeon called Avatar: the Last Airbender. I actually think you'd like it. No, it's really I good. Okay. Okay. So the I, I highly recommend it. I don't have time. I don't think I don't, I'm not good at explain. There's a there's a creature called Appa in it that I think okay. you, you'd fall in love with. But the anyway. So in the first episode or one of the first uh, several episodes, there were giant emperor type penguins and the. The main protagonist, Ang, would get on them and ride them down hills. You can't do that, right? Like that's just like can't that's cartoons. That. Okay. Sorry. Get close enough. Hate to burst you your bubble, them. lol. But <laughs> I didn't want to ride them. I just was like, I don't know. You know, you don't know until you ask. I am that person that would be like, can I ride? Can I ride? I used. I don't know. When I was on a farm, I used to ride sheep. They they were cool though because you'd feed yeah. them afterwards, and I would also weigh like twenty pounds. Like they didn't right. care. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. No, so, no riding the penguins. So no riding. Do they? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. No. I, you know, bursting in my childhood dream there. Sorry. But anyways, <laughs> that's all good. <laughs> I, I figured it was a no, but I, I had to ask. But you have to, uh, have any, to ask. Yeah. So <laughs> anywho, um, I just want to uh, thank everyone for listening in, for for tuning in, for being with us so far, whether it's audio, uh, visually, wherever you are in the world. I, I really appreciate it. And Diane, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, talking about penguins, uh, making sure I don't ride any of them, <laughs> and helping people get excited about what's going on in the world. I think sometimes you only see the negatives. And while we did talk about negatives, there's a whole lot of positive that are people doing at the same time. So I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lowell. It's great to talk to you again.